Welcome to Any Given You. This show is about all things college football, and on it you'll hear insights, analysis, discussion, predictions, and stories of any given topic from any given time, past, present, or future. We believe that the stats are great, but the stories are greater. And you should listen if you have a passion for the game and what makes it great. We're going to talk about touchdowns and touched lives. Come with us on a journey that extends beyond the field of play. We will talk wins, losses, and coachable moments learned on the football field and taken to the classroom, workforce, home, and even the battlefield. Division one to division none. Five-star recruits to walk-ons, it doesn't matter. If it's college football, it's worth the story. I'm your host, Michael Megan. U.S. Army Ranger and a former college football player, and more importantly, a lifelong fan of all things college football. Whether you are a casual fan, a fanatic, a coach, a player, or just a person who loves great stories, then huddle up and commit at any given you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Any Given You podcast. As always, I'm your host, Michael Megan, and Happy New Year to the You crew and all the dedicated and loyal listeners of this show. First off, I want to say big apology that it has been several weeks since we have recorded an episode. It has been the holiday season, as you've all been dealing with family coming in and going, travel arrangements. Christmas present wrapping, cooking, cleaning, everything that has to do with it, and still trying to maintain a little bit of sanity during this time of the year. It's a busy time of year, as everybody knows. And so I, just like everybody else, got ground up in the gears the holiday season and really wanted to give time back to my family and a little bit of a brain break for myself as, you know, closing down the semester here at Texas AM University with the core cadets and all the work that goes on there. It's a wild race to the finish of the semester with grades and with training and with forecasting the upcoming training for the spring, which is crazy and everything else. I just needed a little bit of time to be honest with you. And I, I know that I have an obligation to our loyal listeners. So I apologize that it has been so long since my last episode and I am going to try to do a better job with that as we know that consistency has not been the strong suit of this podcast but when we do fire up this microphone and we decide to come on here and start talking we do not want to waste your time with a shitty product so we're going to do our best to put out a very good episode for you here today there has been a lot of developments in the college football world over this last month that i did not capture in real time. So we're going to recap some of that action from this month, including the early national signing period and the movers and shakers in recruiting and what has happened with that as that has dictated what the future landscape of college football might look like as people have moved not only in the recruiting space, but in the in the transfer portal space. Uh, so we want to recapture that as well as touching on some of the bowl simber to remember that has gone down over the last several weeks, some games that we want to capture and highlight, go back and talk about just a little bit, some exciting stuff. Uh, a couple of the bowls have given to us so quite a few. We're going to talk about a lot of games tonight. I mean, for God's sake, there's 41 bowl games. Now, we're not going to talk about all 41 of them, but there are some that stick out. So we want to go back. We want to capture that. We also want to obviously touch on the New Year's Six slate 
and the college football playoff semifinals that did not disappoint that just happened this past weekend and a little bit of a sneak preview ahead to the national championship game. I don't think we're going to preview that one on this episode. I would like to release another standalone preview for that game. But that being said, let's get into it, man. I am excited to be back on the mic and to be back with all of you recording another episode here. The early National Signing Day recruiting cycle opened on December the 18th, and there was a lot of action that happened once again as it's just such a crazy time of the year for programs, for coaching staffs, for all sorts of stuff. Not only are you dealing with closing out the semester, but not only are you dealing with bowl preparation if your team has made it to a bowl, uh, but you're also dealing with this entire monster that has become the recruiting, the early national signing day, the, 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 uh, another part of your annual recruiting cycle, and the portal opening up all simultaneously. Some programs have done a decent and I would say very good elite job of navigating those waters. Some other programs left a little bit to be desired, but we'll talk a little bit about it. Georgia notches the top class again. This will be the third time under Kirby Smart that the dogs have managed to reel in the number one recruiting class. I believe that that has been officially set in stone as they have put enough distance between them and the next couple of teams in the cycle that are not going to be able to catch them versus the number of signees that they already have in there. They uh, accumulated 315 total recruiting points. Their class is 25 signees with an average of 93.58 average and includes two of the top 10 recruits in all of college football. Uh, There was a big recruiting move where they lost their number one Uh, five-star recruit in the class in Dylan Riola, who flipped his commitment to the University of Nebraska. And what do they do? They follow it up by flipping safety K.J. Bolden, who had been committed to the Florida State Seminoles for the entire fall, uh, flipping him on national early National Signing Day and signing him out of Grayson High School up there in Georgia. So that is a huge land and a huge commit for the Bulldogs and enough to seal their number one spot. And talent accrual at Georgia continues. You know, this is a level of recruiting that Georgia did not have prior to Kirby Smart. And you see that they just continue to bring in these four, five-star blue chip recruits and are just pumping Athens full of these Jims and Joes that are going to be household names, early round draft picks, as they're doing not only a good job in talent acquisition, but also the development there. So exciting stuff for Georgia. Alabama, Texas, Miami, Ohio State, the usual suspects round out the top five. This will be, I believe, the at least the second, if not third consecutive week, year that uh, Georgia, Alabama, Texas, and Ohio State will all be in the top five. Miami slides up in there. Miami under Mario Cristobal has recruited very well since he's got there. Oregon recruited lights out while he was up there managing that program. Recruiting is not the issue, obviously, for the Miami Hurricanes. Getting that talent to play commensurate to their ratings and managing that roster, that whole piece throughout the season, that seems to be another issue. But talent 
accrual in Miami down there in Coral Gables, at, at least is not, and that is staying strong for them. Auburn are huge winners in this early National Signing Day period. Hugh Freeze working some magic. Uh, you would like to think that it's all above board this time, uh, contrary to what happened at Ole Miss. I believe they're going about things uh, the right way there at Auburn. You know, he he would be under the microscope in this in this job he has with the Tigers, but they they reel in the number seven recruiting class. That is huge for Auburn. That's their first top ten class in a couple of years. Obviously, the Brian Harson years in comparison to to this signing class and the kind of signing classes that Gus Malzahn was able to bring in while he was at Auburn, Brian Harson's classes were kind of disastrous. So it's it's good if you're an Auburn fan to see Auburn back in the fold of landing a top 10 class with a couple of other com, uh, possible commitments and possible flips at actual National Signing Day in February. There's some there's some uh, uh some rumors, there's some traffic that they might get a, a couple of nice pieces uh, to to put in addition to this class and maybe bump up an, another notch or two. Um, their class is headlined by a pair of wide receivers in Cam Coleman and Perry Thompson, both of them five-star wide receiver recruits, six foot three, 205 pounds a piece, bookend outside guys that I think are going to be really impactful for this Auburn program. I would have liked to see better recruiting along the line of scrimmage in this one, but they have picked up some nice skill talent, so at least they can hang their hat on that. I'm not exactly sure what's coming back in the trenches for Auburn this next year, but as we know, Hugh Freeze really made his hay with having some really good skill positional talent at Ole Miss as he was able to use that system there. And then again, we saw that same type of approach that he used to field very, very good Liberty team. So it'll be interesting to see what he does at Auburn with this skill talent. Texas A&M not enjoying their usual top 10 spot on the composite rankings, but I like this class. Now, overall, the class sits at 21 right now, which it sounds like a five-alarm fire when you're talking about where Texas A&M has been previous to this in recruiting, but the emphasis in the recruiting class is what I like, and you can already start to see the thumbprint of Mike Elko and the kind of team that he wants to build here at Texas A&M. Strong emphasis on recruiting up front in the trenches, which is huge considering they're having to replace essentially that entire elite defensive line that was reeled in in the 2022 class, I believe it was. Um, so decent job in bringing in uh, some experienced guys also through the portal that I think will add some value on this roster. And they've appreciated in value from high school to their transfer rankings from the programs that they're coming out of. And I'm also excited for the programs in general that some of these recruits are coming out of, or I, I should say these transfer guys, they're coming from places like Purdue, Kansas State, uh, under coaching staffs that I think did a really good job with player development and the, the cultural things that have been ankle-biting Texas A&M for years. So hopefully an inject of that will be a little bit of shot in the arm for the program. The question is, is do they finish with Terry Bussey the number one rated cornerback in all of the 24-7 uh, re uh, recruiting composite, um, do they finish with, with him signed 
with his letter of intent. He is still a hard commit as of right now, but the fact that he has not inked his name in the early uh, National Signing Day period I think is a little bit concerning, and I, I'm not sure that Texas A&M brings him home all the way. If they did, however, that would solidly bump their class up into that sort of top 15 uh, atmosphere as he is over a 98% rated recruit. So it would be a big land. It would be essentially their only five-star that they have signed or that they will have signed in this class. So we'll see what they what they do with that. I do also want to talk about another winner. It's not a team that we talk about a whole lot on this podcast, but I feel like it's a team that's going to kind of force us moving forward to kind of address them and take them a little bit more seriously than what we have seen out of this program in recent years, and that's Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech has made a big push in recruiting. They are projected to finish with the 31st overall class. Now, right now, they're sitting at 35, but there are some guys that they're projected to get by National Signing Day that will bump them up a, a few more spots. And it's not just a portal class that they're putting together, although they have made some nice additions in the transfer portal. These are high school guys that they are recruiting to build out their program. And you can see Coach Key is already putting an emphasis on not only bringing in some bodies in the short term to help them win on the field now, as Georgia Tech has become sort of a, a nice little, I guess you could say, developmental spot for some of these Georgia bounce backs that are going there, coming, you know, guys that are not highly rated guys that are not cracking the rosters at places like Georgia are bouncing back to Georgia Tech and going and playing for Coach Key. This recruiting class, if they were to finish 31st overall as projected, that would move them up 33 spots in the recruiting rankings from the previous year. So very interesting movement out of that program, in my opinion, and we'll have to see what kind of dividends the early National Signing Day period and National Signing Day period have in store for these programs. So recruiting is still the lifeblood of college football. The portal, you can't deny that the portal has its effects on changing the short term of what the college football landscape can look like. But I've said this before, portal teams using the portal, it's like playing high risk, high reward stocks. It's either boom or bust. It's like a shot of steroids for your roster, for your program. You might see some incredible short-term results, but if that, if, if, if that does not translate to, to wins, you see these kinds of things kind of devolve. And I, I, I still believe, and it's not just a belief, I, I think the empirical evidence is there to support that high school recruiting is still how championship rosters are built out in the construct of the game. So big stuff in recruiting here in December. Can't underemphasize it enough and wanted to go back and make sure that we captured some of this. Obviously, 24-7 sports does a really good job of putting together an entire recruiting composite for every team in FBS and even FCS ranks. So if you're interested in more of that, just fire up the old Google engine, go over there, see how your team stacked up. It was a bowl simber to remember. There were a lot of games, obviously. 
as we said before, there are 41 official FBS bowl games during the bowl season. But I want to talk about a bowl that is outside of the FBS ranks for a minute because, once again, this is any given you. So any given team, any given time, any given place. That's what we talk about on the show. So I want to capture this real quick and let you know that Florida A&M University, FAMU, to the lay person, won the Celebration Bowl versus Howard by a score of 36, or excuse me, as I was, 30 to 26, excuse me, uh, to capture an HBCU national title. The game itself, I I was kind of tracking it a little bit on ESPN.com in in sort of the game cast uh, deal, as I thought it was probably the most exciting game that was on that day. It was a back-and-forth matchup, saw both defenses generate three takeaways apiece. And to be honest, that really kept Howard University in this game. Ultimately, FAMU flexed their muscles, coils, showed their fangs, whatever, the rattlers. Cheesy joke. You know what? If I could cut that, I would cut that. But I'm not going to cut that because I can't. And uh, they scored 20 points in the fourth quarter. So they take home the win. They take home the Celebration Bowl. They are HBCU National title winners. Uh, Another bowl that stuck out to me for the reasons that it is the first FBS bowl win for this program, Jacksonville State takes care of the University of Louisiana. Uh, Rich Rodriguez doing some really good work down there with that program as the Gamecocks capture that win. They have a nine-win season, and you wonder how bad Jacksonville State potentially would have blown out Louisiana if they had not turned the ball over four times. They did win in overtime 34-31, but usually when you turn the ball over four times, you have a negative four in your turnover margin as Louisiana didn't have any turnovers. You typically lose those games by 21 points or more. Um, they didn't. They they turned the ball over four times, still got the win. So that just that shows me that even with the miscues, the lack of execution, the ugly performance in that regard, that team was better in every other margin to still come back and get that win. So I think that's really impressive stuff from a program perspective, from a team that's going to show up, a team that's going to battle and get those wins. So good good stuff from Rich Rod and Jacksonville State. Another thriller, Western Kentucky versus Old Dominion. This was like uh, someone is like if you were playing a video game, you hit pause, right, because it was too hard, and then you adjust the sliders from All-American down to freshman, and then you, then you play because you don't want to lose, right? Going into the fourth quarter, Western Kentucky was down to Old Dominion 35 to 14. They rattled off a 21-point fourth quarter to come back and tie this game 35-35 and then won it in overtime 38 to 35. This will also mark the third consecutive year that Western Kentucky's quarterback play has been phenomenal in the bowl game. Uh third straight year of over 400 yards passing and five touchdown performance from three different Western Kentucky quarterbacks. Again, that system, they like to air it out there. They like to chuck it around the yard. Really uh, fun stuff if you got to catch this game. Now, unfortunately, I didn't really get to see this game, but I was getting the updates. My phone was blowing up like crazy 
as I had written Western Kentucky off for dead in this one. And they fight all the way back. They claw all the way back and get this win. And that's why you love the sport. That's why you love college football, the topsy-turvy nature of it. You never know what you're going to get sometimes. And so an exciting bowl game in that regard. South Alabama, nothing really to unpack about this game as they would win 59 to 10 over Eastern Michigan. That's an ass whooping. But then they also whipped their ass after the game as during the singing of the alma mater and the celebration ceremony for Southern for South Alabama, an Eastern Michigan player ran up and actually struck and physically attacked one of the South Alabama players. I saw this on Instagram. I think a lot of people probably did. Uh, but South Alabama seemed much more game in that fight. Uh, they it looked like Eastern Michigan really poked the bear because at that point in time, all you could see was South Alabama jerseys just swarming to the uh, to the source of disruption there. As uh, I think the Eastern Michigan got their ass kicked on and off the scoreboard in that one. Um, another game that ended in a dust up was Kansas's win over UNLV. They get the win forty nine to thirty six. Unfortunately, there was some ugly stuff after the game. But what I don't want that to do is overshadow the performance that Kansas's quarterback, Jason Bean, put on. Went going 19 of 28 for 449 yards, six touchdown strikes. He did have three interceptions on the contest, which, again, it, you know, you don't want to see the turnovers. But if you are flinging the rock for 449 yards and six touchdowns, it's it's hard to lose in that scenario. So Kansas takes care of business with Lance Leopold, uh, a coach that I've got a lot of respect for, and I think he's doing a great job with that program. This Kansas team, speaking of, returns a lot next year, including Jason Bean. And you wonder what they're going to look like, you know, primed for the new look Big 12 coming into this next year, as I think the Jayhawks may be one of the teams that – Again, as they continue this ascent as a program, you got to think that they're going to be competitive in a new Big 12 landscape with Texas and Oklahoma exiting. And even with the addition of Colorado and Utah, there's nothing on tape that ha has shown me that Kansas cannot be competitive in that league. So it should be pretty exciting stuff for a Jayhawks fan base that hasn't had a lot to be excited about over the last several decades, at least on the football field. Traditionally a basketball school, flipping the culture there on the gridiron, and you love to see it. The American Conference wanted to point this out just about bowl season in general. Kind of had a little bit of a rough bowl season. They only qualified six teams in general from the conference for bowl games, but Rice, Tulane, and SMU all took some ugly losses in bowl season. Tulane absolutely got waxed in their bowl game, as did Rice. SMU, a team with a number next to their name, cannot take out Boston College, a team from the ACC that has really disappointed over the last couple of seasons. They get handled in their bowl game, too. And it just, again, reaffirms the reason why you have a, a power five expectation versus the group of five expectation. And once again, even though we have had a group of five representative in the playoff in Cincinnati a couple of years ago, and who knows what it may have looked like back in 2017 with that very good UCF team, had they been let into the playoff, who knows what that might have looked like. There is generally a reason why 
even the best group of five teams are not taken seriously for that play, the, the current construct of the playoff. You do wonder what it's going to look like with the 12-team expanded playoff, but once again, it's a cautionary tale. The level that your group of five program has to be at, it has to be blooded against these traditional Power Five conference opponents during the season and put something on tape that gives them the the resume and a realistic look where you know you you consider yeah like yeah I think these teams could get a win against a quality power five opponent but once again three of the best teams in the American absolutely run out of the building by their uh, bowl opponents in just middle of the pack group of five opponents so um, again interesting stuff there Louisville took on USC. Now, Louisville was the ACC runner-up this year. They had a good year. They had 10 wins on the season. I, I think the schedule was very friendly for them this year, but they did do a good job. They have a, they had a good win against Notre Dame, uh, put some good stuff on tape this year, as I think Jeff Brom has done a very good job in his first year at Louisville. That being said, they do lose at the hands of USC 42-28. to as Miller Moss, the USC quarterback heir apparent, went off. 372 yards, six touchdowns, just the one pick on the night. But that's expected from USC to score, right? You, that's what you expect to see. You expect to see a score from USC that's going to be somewhere in the 40s. What was refreshing to see was some sort of pulse on defense as we saw Alex Grinch whose defenses were consistently a shit show at not only Oklahoma, but also USC, fired, relieved from his job. And then we see this Trojans team with a little bit of time to prepare for this bowl season. They give up 28. Now, 28, to me, is about what an average defense gives up. But when you check the stat line on this one, right? Scat line. Stat line on this one. USC... Uh, did not have the ball for most of this competition. In fact, Louisville controlled the rock for 35 minutes and 35 seconds of this contest, and USC still found a way only to surrender 28 points. Now, the rush defense still looked pretty shitty, giving up 161 on the ground. The pass defense, however, 141 through the air in a game where Louisville was playing from behind for most of the contest. I think that is a good starting point for this USC program defensively. Looked much more solid, looked much more gap sound, looked like it was playing with a new level of intensity as opposed to the Alex Grinch clown shows that we were used to seeing out of USC's defense. A&M versus Oklahoma State turned out to be a better bowl game than I expected, especially considering the Aggies lost Jalen Henderson, the quarterback that coming into that contest, on the very first snap. That's in addition to 31 Texas A&M players that did not make themselves available, let's just call it that way for various reasons, for this game. Now, Marcel Reed came in and uh, played during the night and actually had a fairly successful evening, going 20 for 33, 361 yards through the air, also had a rushing touchdown. He did have an interception that he threw on the night. So, again, but being forced into that situation, to be able to throw for 361 yards, 
tells me some things, right? It tells me that even though there were only three scholarship wide receivers on the field for Texas A&M, they do have some decent wide receiver talent, and they do have at least a little bit of the ability to keep the pocket clean for a guy that essentially just came in off the couch to come and play in this game. When you have athletes outside of the wide receiver position, it can really help, you know, a young quarterback coming in and, uh, you know, being forced into this situation as, as we saw a and if they had any semblance of a run game, I think they might have been able to actually win this game. The Aggies showed up with some of their classic mistakes, turning the ball over. But I think overall, I was pretty impressed with what they were able to field with all, everybody out, you know, opt-outs, transfer portals, injuries, what have you, and your QB1 for the night going down on the first snap. I was impressed. I was impressed by their fight. I really was. And that that's the kind of performances that you like to see in a bowl season. You know, against all odds, you're still going to go out there and give your best. There's a saying here in Aggieland. They say, I've seen them win. I've seen them lose. But damn, I've never seen them quit. And I think Texas A&M really embodied that in this bowl game. And the most poetic thing that could have happened, the 12th man himself, Sam Matthews, walk-on linebacker, had to play strong safety in this game, bump back, led the team in tackles in this competition. This is a walk-on player, mind you. 14 tackles, one and a half tackles for loss, pass defended, and an interception that ended up going viral on Instagram as the 12th man was able to snag a pick and get some momentum back for Texas A&M in this contest. Now, Oklahoma State, I, I'm talking all about Texas A&M, right? They lost the game. Oklahoma State did win this contest. Mike Gundy continues a very impressive postseason bowl record with Oklahoma State as they have been one of the steady eddies and most consistent programs in all of college football. And that trend continued with this bowl win for Oklahoma State. So congratulations to the Cowpokes getting the win in the Texas Bowl. But I, I am encouraged by at least the fight of these young guys from Texas A&M and excited to see what they can add to it and the culture switch there with Mike Elko coming up for the 2024 season. Jed Fish and Arizona defeat Oklahoma in the Alamo Bowl 38-24. Couple of thoughts from this game. First off, Arizona is a good team. They're a good football team, man. They they really have taken some massive strides as a roster, as a program, as they see themselves, as they take themselves seriously, and you should take them seriously too. That game meant the world to the program. And in a season where, again, where you hear the term meaningless, meaningless bowl games, meaningless games thrown around so much, you could see how much it meant to this program. And guys in particular like Martel Irby, who plays safety for the University of Arizona, who was uh, interviewed after the game. Guy had an interception, forced a fumble, had seven tackles on the night. This dude lived in like a Planet Fitness or some shit. He was completely out of the sport of college football, a family man, everything else. <clears throat> Fought and scraped for an opportunity to come back to the sport joined Arizona as a walk-on, ends up being an impact player and getting a win in this game, defeating a major program in college football. Awesome stuff. 
And I'm excited to see Jed Fish coming into a new Big 12 league this next year with this Arizona team, with this Arizona program, returning quite a few pieces. And I think that this program is going to continue to stay hot. I mean, I really do. This guy can coach himself some football. There are going to be some very, very good coaches in this new Big 12. You got guys like Jed Fish. You got Lance Leopold. You got Kyle Whittingham at Utah coming in, another coach I have a tremendous amount of respect for. You've got Mike Gundy, who we've talked about at Oklahoma State, who has been one of the best coaches in, in the game for years and years. You have guys like Matt Campbell, who's a coach's coach at Iowa State. I mean, you have coaches all over this league. It'll be really fun to watch these programs and these chess matches coming up in the new Big 12. But Jed Fish in Arizona, that is a team and that is a program that has improved their stock year by year in an almost linear progression. I do think that potentially this year might be a little bit of a high watermark for them uh, just a bit. I don't expect another huge dynamic jump for them coming up this next year, but the program as a whole, the state of it is in such a better spot than what he inherited. You got to remember what how much this means to these kids. You got to remember just a couple of years ago, they were blown out like 70 to nothing in the Territorial Cup against Arizona State. That was that was the level at which this Arizona program was at. And there are guys, there are some, not many of them, but there are guys who are still on that roster that remember that, that remember getting beat down like that, being one of the worst teams in all college football, being a complete laughing stock as a program and as a team. And to go out and get this win against Oklahoma and finish the season the way they did, it's really special. You got to also remember a lot of these kids for this Arizona team, after they showed even a semblance of a pulse last year, Arizona got rated for their best talent from the rest of the Pac-12. A lot of kids wound up leaving this Wildcats team and going to more traditional powers in the big or in the Pac-12, rather. Excuse me. And for this team to do what they've done this year with that coaching situation, hats off, bravo. I can't say it enough. Big round of applause for the Arizona Wildcats. Incredible stuff. Now we're getting into some of the more major bowls after we have recapped some of the action. And we're going to start off talking about Ohio State versus Missouri. Ohio State Nation, grab your torches and pitchforks. Let's fire Ryan Day. It's terrible. The state of the program's completely in shambles. It's shit. It's crap. You've lost to Michigan three years in a row. Woe is me. Oh, my God, this is horrible. All right, now let's take a deep breath. If you like defense and you like the physical game in this one, I really liked watching this game. And I, I got to be honest with you, Ohio State, without a QB situation that was competent, without Marvin Harrison Jr., it completely declawed that offense in so many ways. Missouri was able to load up the box, keep a lot of bodies around the line of scrimmage. They played physical and they shut down really the one thing that Ohio State had to go on, and that was Travion Henderson in the backfield. Made it really hard to get anything done offensively. On the other side of the ball, however, Ohio State's defense is legit. It is a legit defense in year two under Jim Knowles with a lot, once again, because they were very young and talented the first year 
that Jim Knowles got there. And you knew that Jim Knowles was going to have three years with most of this defense, like a strong nucleus of this defense was going to be able to have three years in the Jim Knowles system. You saw what Jim Knowles was able to do in three years at Oklahoma State and the kind of defense that he was able to put together down there, right? So coming into this next year with this Ohio State defense, the way that they've recruited it over the last couple of years, the nucleus that's returning, and three years in the system, it makes you wonder just how good this Ohio State defense can become and can get to. I mean, they are legitimately physical and tough on that defensive side of the ball, and that is not what you're used to seeing out of Ohio State in some recent years. You're not used to seeing that. You're used to seeing a different brand of Ohio State. So does this mean that Ohio State is somehow worse off because it's more of a defensively centric team now? I don't think so. It's still an 11-win season with a quarterback situation that was less than ideal, that was downright horrid for the bowl game. Now, that is an area of concern that definitely needs to be shored up by the Buckeyes this next year, but you can at least count on that defense, and they put that on display in this game. Missouri, really proud of this program, man. I did not expect much, and I don't think most of anybody expected much out of the Missouri Tigers coming out of the SEC this year. They were picked to finish, I think, 13th in the conference, second last. Like Vanderbilt was the only team that was projected to be worse than Missouri. And they said, fuck that, and came out this year and got the, got 10 wins in the regular season, capped it off with a bowl victory against Ohio State. It was awesome to see. It was a physical football game. Now, there were times in this game where it was it was like watching paint dry, and it was three and out punt, three and out punt, three and out punt, three and out punt. But if you like hard-hitting, physical, in-your-face, fist-fight football, this was a game for you. Cody Schrader, running back for Missouri, 128 yards, 4.4 yards a carry, caps it off with a touchdown, finally breaks through late in the game. He ran fucking angry this game. I mean, when you turn on the tape and you take a look at how he ran in between the tackles, head down, smash mouth, two hands on the ball, putting it in your face. I mean, doses of plastic soup to the face, putting the helmet on your ass, as my as my high school coach used to say, right? That dude ran behind his pads. I think that he made some money for himself at the next level because that was a workman-like 128-yard performance. That was the kind of running against a defensive front that I think reasonably is chalked full of future NFL guys that are, that are likely going to be playing on Sunday. And he was able to put that kind of performance on display. Incredible stuff from Cody Schrader. And make no mistake, man, let's call it for what it is. If this kid wasn't a former Division II walk-on who was very unheralded coming out of the transfer portal, was picked up because he was Missouri's kind of guy, blue-collar, physical dude, older guy, work ethic out the yank. This guy was doing conditioning drills and workouts in his sweats before he was even supposed to report to camp in the middle of the night. There's there somebody took a, a video of him on the on the phone, unbeknownst to him, working out in the stadium when nobody else was there. 
that kind of just personifies and embodies what this Missouri team was all about. A developmental program that said enough is enough. We're tired of being the laughing stock of this league. We're going to show you something great. And he put that on display. If Cody Schrader was not that, if he was not a, a former Division II walk-on player, this dude, I think, would have been in New York. I think this dude would have been more of a household name. And he deserves his flowers. So hats off to him and the Missouri Tigers for getting that win in this competition. And I thought it was a really good game. I, I did it. Sometimes I'm a bit of a glutton for punishment. I like to sit back and watch some of these games that other people kind of want to forget about. I'm kind of sick in that way. I like watching those games sometimes just as much as I like watching the, you know, the, the games where teams are flinging it back and forth and putting up a ton of points. I like watching hard-nosed physical football in this day and age, and, and that game did not disappoint. Notre Dame dismantled Oregon State 40-8. to Again, an Oregon, Oregon State team missing guys, as a lot of teams are during this, you know, current uh, college football era that we're living in. Excuse me, sip of the water. I'm getting a little bit uh, <clears throat> dry in the throat. And I'll also say that, you know, when you have a team like Oregon State, even though they have a number 19 next to their logo in this contest, that was put there by a team that was not present in this game. Because when you have, again, these, this opt-out situation, when you lose your head coach to a new new program, all that other stuff, it's not the same version of the team that was present in the season. And when you have a developmental team like Oregon State, and I'll even see these portal teams, right, you know, some of these really talented portal teams, when they're playing in some of these bowl games where the opt-out quit – is an option and you don't have to necessarily finish what you start because we live in a culture where we seem to tell people that that's okay. It gets harder than you get bit by that opt-out bug a little bit harder than some of the other more established programs. And that's what I saw on this one. I think a full strength Oregon state squad versus this Notre Dame squad. I, I would have still taken the Irish to win this one, but 40 to eight, that's the margin you're going to get. Now, Notre Dame clocks their first 10-win season under Marcus Freeman, and that's really good. I think that's really good for Marcus Freeman, and that's really good for the state of Notre Dame football because Marcus Freeman was able to do two things this year that he was not able to do in his first year. Number one, that's get 10 wins, okay? Number two, that's beat your arch rival in USC. He was able to do both of those things this year. It's still a 10-3 and three season. There was a couple of ugly losses in there, but you're moving in and trending in the right direction if you're Marcus Freeman and this Notre Dame team. At least you're getting a little bit back to the status quo of what's expected in South Bend, and this bowl victory capping off a 10-win season, beating USC, that's a step in the right direction. Kentucky and Clemson was a thriller between two programs that tend to do well in bowl preparation. It was a I think it was really I think it was a really fun back and forth game. For my money, one of the better bowl games of the season outside of the college football playoff semifinals for sure. Like I said, it was back and forth, but the Tigers did prevail on the strength of a four touchdown rushing performance from Phil Maffa. So you're happy for him. 
And Dabo said after the win against Notre Dame that you need to buy all the stock you can in Clemson. And then we saw this team close out the season with four straight wins and not against total chump programs either. I mean, they get the win over Notre Dame. They get a win, a decisive win, an impressive win over an improved Georgia Tech squad. They beat UNC by 11. Uh, again, a UNC team that I don't really trust, but a UNC at the time that was ranked, it's another ranked win. And then they go on to defeat their arch rival in South Carolina. That was a task that they were unable to do last year. So that gave the Tigers, along with this bowl victory, nine wins for the 13th consecutive year under Dabo Sweeney at Clemson. And so although Clemson does not enjoy the same level of success that they enjoyed in their heyday under Dabo Sweeney when they represented in four national title games, winning two of them, beating Alabama twice outright in what I would consider to be during the height of the Nick Saban dynasty at that time. To talk a little bit more about that later. Um, it's still one of the premier programs in all of college football. It has to be. 13 consecutive win, uh, years with at least nine wins on your resume. I mean, really impressive stuff for the longevity of the Clemson program. And again, you know, you wonder if Clemson is going to start to turn a corner with some of the changes they've made coaching staff wise, and at least a little bit of a, let's call it a bi-curious nature towards the transfer portal from Dabo Sweeney finally offering a single solitary guy the opportunity to come to Clemson out of the transfer portal. So you never know what he might start to become willing to do to keep up in the ACC arms race. And I mean, not even, it's not even really a conference arms race anymore as the sport has shifted more and more towards the national feel. It, it's just, it, it's part of being able to survive in the current construct of college football. So you wonder if Dabo Sweeney will, continue to move in that direction. But again, nine wins for the 13th consecutive year, nine plus, I should say, for the 13th consecutive year. Really impressive stuff from Clemson. Okay, so we're going to talk about this. Georgia versus Florida State. Easily, I think, the most talked about bowl game of the bowl season in terms of just – conversational stuff to unpack about the game. Two teams that many folks were or are of the opinion that should have been in the playoff. Social media has been absolutely on fire with a irate, pissed off Knowles Nation with their torches and pitchforks in hand going on and on about the injustice of leaving a 13-0 ACC champion out while they placed a one-loss SEC champion in Alabama in. And then conversely, you have Georgia, a team <laughs> ranked at number one for the entire season, played in the SEC championship game to a then number six ranked Alabama team, 
three-point loss. It wasn't a it wasn't a drubbing. It was a three-point loss. Honestly, Georgia outplayed Alabama most of the second half. They literally ran out of time in that game. And somehow they dropped from sixth as Alabama soars up to number four and is placed in the playoff over both of these teams. The college football playoff committee did get it wrong here. I agree with that sentiment because it's the argument of the four best versus the four most deserving, right? If you were going to put the four best college football teams and how you determine that, right? You take a look at the rosters. You take a look at the current state of the rosters, right? You take a look at their power indexes. You take a look at all that stuff, right? And you determine who the four best football teams in all the land are. I think that that looks like or would have at the time, okay, without the revisionist history of what's just happened with the bowl games. But at the time, I would have argued that that would have been Michigan, Texas, Alabama, and Georgia. Some combination of that would have been the four best. Both SEC teams in the playoff, certainly not leaving Georgia out. If you go most deserving, which again, I would have been okay with, then neither SEC team is in. And you put Florida State in there. You put Texas in there because they have the head-up win over Alabama. You got Washington in as an undefeated Pac-12 champ. And you have Michigan in as your undefeated Big Ten champ. The college football playoff committee did neither of those. They pissed down their leg completely and mismanaged this. And you slide in Alabama, you leave out Florida State. And you leave out Georgia while harping that you've selected the four best teams, which I don't buy if Georgia's not in there. All that being said, right? And and I do. I, I, I literally do think that they got it wrong. And Florida State absolutely had an argument on the deserving basis. And make no mistake, that was still a good Florida State team for the rest of the pieces that were there minus Jordan Travis. I mean – you can make an argument based on what we saw that they weren't they wouldn't have done any worse than maybe an Alabama or Texas, the two losers of the playoff, right? In the semifinals. I mean, you can make that argument. But all that being said, at the time, right? Florida State had an opportunity to still do something special, which would have been a 14 and 0 potentially undefeated season. At which point in time, there's no way that the media wouldn't have split a national championship, that they, that they wouldn't have received at least one first place vote at the end of the year to claim a national title. And I know that that seems beneath Florida State. I got all that. But an undefeated season is still an undefeated season. And at least then you could have brought up the conversation that Florida State was the best team in the land, and they got fucked, right? Football is a sport in which character is revealed. And FSU 
with the way that they failed to show up, their lack of willingness to band together one last time and put it out there on the field, put something out there to be proud of on the field in this Orange Bowl, to me, was disgusting. I think it was probably some of the most heinous crybaby shit that I have seen in the current sport. And then you want to sit there and make apologist excuses as to why you got your ass kicked 63 to 3. The worst bowl loss in the history of bowl games. You lost by 60 points. And then you wanted to sit there and talk about, well, it's because we didn't have these players. It was a completely different team. I've heard the argument. I've heard that argument. And some people have countered, and this was a point that I hadn't thought about, but just food for thought. Some people countered with, so you're saying the composition of the team and how the team performed was changed because you were down key players. You had lost key players, right? That was the whole point or the whole argument from the college football playoff committee in the first place. Just food for thought. I don't fucking buy that personally. Like I said, I still think the college football playoff committee got it wrong. My bone to pick is with the lack of leadership in that locker room from Florida State, the lack of leadership there. Let me just put this in like other digestible con content, right? You've got Georgia on one end of this spectrum that is not playing for an undefeated season anymore. They lost to Alabama in gut-wrenching fashion by three points that cost them their ticket to the college football playoff. And they have more pros on that roster, or at least as many, as Florida State has. They have as much, they have more Sunday talent on that roster than Florida State does. They have NFL futures everywhere on that roster. In the current construct of the game, I don't know if anybody would have batted an eye if most of Georgia decided to sit out of that game. And yet, Kirby Smart and that program decided to show up and compete at that game one last time. And all he pitched them on was, let's go get the 50th win for our senior class. He was able to get the program that has elite NFL talent all over it and every reason to sit out of that game. And yet, the only people that were not present to suit up for the Georgia Bulldogs were... Rotational guys, second and third string guys that decided they were going to transfer to another program prior to the game anyway, and then injuries. Anybody else of note decided they were going to strap it on one more time and they were going to play their fucking ass off for Georgia and each other. That's culture. That's leadership. That's showing up. That's going into the competition, taking your opponent seriously and playing to a standard no matter what the circumstances or the opponent is. On the other hand, you have another program that decided I'm going to sit out of this and I'm going to watch my quote unquote brothers that I've worked with all season get their ass pounded, get shellacked. 
get embarrassed, get publicly embarrassed and humiliated on national television with, in my opinion, more to play for. Couldn't get it done. That is, to me, concerning. And I think in some certain ways, at least in the short term, maybe not the long term, but at least in the short term, in the public perception of the program, it's a bad look for Florida State and might have set them back a little bit. So 63-3, to it just an absolute shellacking from Georgia on Florida State. That's the soapbox I wanted to talk about that. As far as the game goes, there's not too much to unpack. They ran into a buzzsaw that was much better than them and much more focused on actually being there and wanting to be there and playing that game. So hats off to Georgia for finishing what you started. Florida State, I got to say, I'm, I'm disappointed. And this is coming from a guy that was a big Florida State guy back you know, in the 90s, back with Bobby Bowden, back when that program was one of the premier programs in all of college football. And just to think about that version of Florida State versus what you saw on the field and, and them seemingly to be okay with it until they weren't. Didn't seem like they liked it after the game. I don't know. Got some questions about that culture and that program and the direction they're going to head in. So, Ole Miss takes down Big Ten heavyweight Penn State. They pour more fuel on the fire by winning this game over Penn State on that let's fire James Franklin uh, argument. And to be honest with you, I don't know if that's exactly where I would go with this, but if he does not win a big game here in a little bit, like soon, like a game of note, we know that Penn State, can slay bums like all day. We know that. We know that they can beat the shit out of teams that are nowhere near as good as them. These marquee matchups is where it goes south for these guys. These these bowl games, these big matchups with Ohio State, Michigan, these marquee matchups is where it goes bad for them. Now, Penn State was down a few notable players in this one, but the coaching in this game, in my opinion, was downright awful. You saw a defense, even though they were missing some key guys, that looked utterly unprepared and utterly confused. And when Manny Diaz, your defensive coordinator, exits stage left and Lane Kiffin puts on a clinic, schooling them in every sense of the word, the use of tempo, the use of formations, it, they looked confused, they looked slow, they looked a step behind constantly. Offensively, how do you not lean on the strength of your offense, which is a backfield with two elite running backs and a massive offensive line, especially when you are giving that up in lieu of Drew Owler, who can't seem to throw the ball down the field, and that has been a consistent problem in every big matchup that this kid has played. He's looked downright awful throwing the ball. So where is your – Quarterback coaching, where's your progression on the offensive side of the ball? I thought Penn State was badly outcoached in this competition, and they go down to a team that they were favored pretty heavily against in the betting public. So I think it's a bad look for the program. I think it's a bad look for James Franklin. And to be honest with you, I think the 12-team playoff is going to be bad for James Franklin too because I think he's going to do enough to be able to get Penn State in there, and that's when it's going to get really exposed. The, the the inadequacies on that coaching staff and the game management is going to rear its ugly head again. I was fooled 
a little bit and lulled a little bit to sleep about previous opinions I had had about James Franklin. And they all reared their ugly head once again in this competition. So I, I feel like I came out of this one with egg on my face because I was sort of defending this guy a few weeks back. But I got to agree with the section of the Penn State faithful that seemed to think that, yeah, he might be a program. He might be Mr. Right now, but I don't think he's Mr. Right in terms of being able to take this program where you guys really want it to go as Penn State Nation. Moving on into the new year, on New Year's Day, there was a slate of bowl games that um, I'm going to say, I'll say that the best game that was played uh, outside of the playoff was probably LSU and Wisconsin. Stupidly, I thought that the under might cash in this one as I thought LSU's offense was going to be a little bit limited without Jaden Daniels. Garrett Nussmeyer came in. We knew he had talent. Had a, an awesome day flinging the rock around, well over 300 yards passing. That LSU secondary, man, it was trash again. Giving up uh, Tanner Mordecai a lot in passing yards to Tanner Mordecai. A guy for Wisconsin, mind you, that hasn't had a great year throwing the ball, and he looked, uh, you know, he, he looked like an elite quarterback out there against LSU. So, Again, that's kind of my takeaway for LSU in that bowl game is if they can address that secondary situation, I think that they can take a big step forward uh, as a program, you know, obviously, coming into this next year. They actually finished the game with three straight sacks from their front seven. So there is still talent along that, that front seven and line of scrimmage and linebacker core. That secondary is a serious concern. And then Tennessee continued the – uh, streak of dominance at the time against the Big Ten uh, SEC matchup with taking out Iowa 35 to nothing. We liked the under on this one. The under was set at 36 and a half. It cashed, but not the way we thought it would as Tennessee dragged Iowa behind the woodshed. We were expecting more of like a 17-13 kind of day. Not exactly sure who was going to come out on top of that one, but Tennessee absolutely just handled business. I was impressed with Nico Imialavava. I'm not sure how you say his name exactly. I'm sure it'll become a well-known name here moving forward. Um, but I digress. He did a good job in this game, I think. I That was the one hesitation that I had with taking Tennessee outright was sort of the unproven entity of the quarterback room coming in for the balls and taking snaps against an Iowa defense that is known for playing that zone concept, disguising what they do very well and frustrating quarterbacks and creating turnovers. I liked what the Tennessee coaching staff did there, and I think they did a really good job with the prep work with Nico, allowing him to pull the ball down, use his legs to kind of take advantage of those zone looks. Everybody knows at least you know, most football 101 folks know that if you have a defense that constantly is dropping back in the zone, you run on that. You run them out of that zone. I like what they did allowing him to use his legs to pick up what he could get as he ended up having multiple rushing touchdowns on the day, and then he also had a passing touchdown. He's very conservative with what they did through the air, just 151 through the air, but no turnovers. That was the biggest thing. They did not allow Iowa to play their brand of ball and get the takeaways. And then Iowa's offense is just as putrid as it ever was. So Tennessee, a team uh, that caps their season with a nice win for themselves. 
I don't know if I can glean too much from this Tennessee squad moving forward into next year, but I will say that the Nico era at least got off to a good start, and he looked good against a very good defense statistically that they put up the most points on that defense of any team all season, the previous high watermark being 31 that they surrendered to Penn State. Tennessee beats them 35-0 convincingly. I will say this as one other side note about that game. Josh Heupel is a dick. Um, he, he really is a dick, man. I have had some questions about how he has handled things at the very end of games, both being on the winning and losing side. I don't think he's won for sportsmanship very much, uh, which I think nests a little bit well with Tennessee. Tennessee is kind of a shit kicker squad when it comes to trying to rub shit in. Um, I'm not a huge fan of that program. And I think he's just kind of a prototypical Tennessee coach. Looks a little bit fat, sloppy, and likes to run the fucking score up and be a dick. So uh, congratulations, though, to Tennessee. Go fuck yourselves. Um, all right. So well, I want to close out talking about one last bowl game outside of the playoff before we talk about the playoff just a little bit. And that is Oregon taking on Liberty in the Fiesta Bowl. And Bo Nix and Bucky Irving and Tez Johnson, these guys that decided to play in their bowl game for a team that had a lot of playoff hopes that were dashed twice by Washington. They stay out. They don't win the Pac-12. They're not in the playoff. And you would expect that a lot of these guys that do have NFL futures, I don't know if they're going to be early round guys, but they are going to be draftable guys decided to come back and play in this game. There was a couple of Oregon players that decided to opt out, but not very many. And I think that has a lot to do with their leader in the locker room in Bo Nix, a guy who has more starts in college football than any other quarterback at the, you know, in, in the sport, in the history of the sport, decided to come back one last time in front of his parents and finish what he started. 163 yards to the air, five touchdowns, broke multiple records in and set multiple records in this game. Tez Johnson, 11 receptions, 172 yards and a touchdown. Bucky Irving, 117 yards on the ground. I think he hit pay dirt as well, potentially. Oregon's defense held an explosive Liberty offense to just 294 yards and six points. Liberty scored first, missed the extra point, so they were up 6-0, and that was the last time they scored anything the rest of the day. I thought Dan Lanning's defense did a phenomenal job flying around the field. It was the Oregon defense you expected to see show up. They did a really good job with a very complex offense from Liberty, again, that spread option, triple option, spread option that Jamie Chadwell ran at Coastal. Liberty has run with great success all, all season. And, uh, and, and Oregon took it, off the, took it off the table from them. Now, I understand that Oregon is a much more talented team inside and out. Oregon's twos and threes are better than Liberty starters. And I expected that they were going to do something like this. They were going to get that win. They were going to get that win handedly. In fact, I suggested that if you were going to bet this game to uh, look into betting an alt line at Oregon minus 28. Some people bid on it. Some people didn't. But 45 to 6 is the final in this competition. 
And I, I want to circle back to Bo Nix and Bucky Irving and Tez Johnson. And the fact that they decided to come back and play this game and finish what they started, it's not meaningless. There are plenty of people that would have looked at this game, that would have looked at this bowl, that would have looked at this opponent and said, this is another stupid, meaningless game. Why don't you sit out of it? Why is it meaningless? What's meaningless about this? What's meaningless about Bo Nix setting records in front of his mom and dad? What's meaningless about his dad with tears in his eyes watching his son play the last game? What's meaningless about finishing what you started? What's meaningless about being accountable as the leader of the team to your brothers in that locker room who have sweat and bled and worked and scratched and clawed with you all season long? What is meaningless about that? Meaningless games, meaningless bowl games, meaningless. That term was not coined in the locker room. I can promise you that. It was coined by us, the college football fans. It was coined by the casual fan. It was coined by people who wouldn't know what competition or competitive nature would be if it sat and fucking teabagged them. It's coined by people that don't know what accountability is. It's coined by people who don't finish what they start. That is where meaningless came from because it didn't come from these kids. It came from us and we allowed a space as college football fans for them to turn around and just kind of agree with it and go, okay, you're giving me an option to quit. You're telling me it's okay to quit. You're telling me it's okay to not finish what I start. It's funny how you start off, you raise kids, you put them in sports. And what do, what do most parents and most people tell their kids when they start off in sports? You don't have to do it next season, but you're not going to quit this year. You're going to finish what you started. Why does that change? Just because all of a sudden dollar signs start getting attached to things. That's what I hate about the direction in general that not only sports, but our, our country moves in. It's sad. People don't know what commitment is like anymore. And I'm going to tell you this right now. If you think everything outside the playoff and everything outside the national championship is meaningless, then the win over your rival is meaningless. The, the big upset that you pulled during the season is meaningless. All right? The regular season is meaningless then if it didn't finish in a national title. That's, that's my gripe with this meaningless stuff. It means something to these kids. And if you have two sets of eyes and you can see that for what it's worth, the sport still holds enough beauty in those moments when people decide to show up and finish things the right way. And they're applauded for it. And I salute them for it. I don't buy into that meaningless stuff. Because just because it doesn't finish in a national championship, that means that 129 teams in this sport every single year are meaningless. Come on, cut the shit. So let's talk about the games that the only the games that mattered, the college football playoff games, Alabama versus Michigan, Texas versus Washington, Alabama, Michigan in the Rose Bowl, the granddaddy of them all, and Texas versus Washington in the Sugar Bowl. I got to say that I was pretty spot on with how the game was going to play out in terms of 
the feel of it, the score, but I was dead wrong with who was going to win each one of these games. I thought that Texas versus Washington would be a bit of a shootout. I had a 38-31 Longhorns, and I took the over. Turns out it's a 37-31 Washington Huskies. And then I had 28-20 Alabama over Michigan, and it's a 27-20 overtime thriller where the Wolverines come out on top. When these games wrapped, my immediate thoughts after the game was that was oddly reminiscent of what we saw last year in 2022 in the semifinals. We saw a couple of heavyweight elite college football programs square off last year being Georgia and Ohio State this year, Alabama, Michigan. They played a hard fought game that came down to the wire. The team that lost had possession of the ball at the end. Could have gone either way, back and forth. Both teams made mistakes. The winner of the competition didn't play their best game. I'll say that. A lot of special teams miscues. A lot of opportunities to slip on the banana peel that Michigan you know, could have given this game away a few times. Alabama also made some mistakes, but I felt some things that Michigan did were (laughs) more egregious, and somehow they still survived it. Still, I thought Michigan did a really nice job in the trenches. They did a great job up front. They understood Alabama's protection rules pretty well. They had a lot of free runners to the quarterback. I think they had five or six first-half sacks, which is absolutely crazy. Alabama made some adjustments in the second half, started running the ball to the edges and the perimeters where I thought that they would have more success than trying to blast it up the middle against Michigan and two probably early round NFL guys at the defensive tackle positions. Um, Michigan offensively, they did some things with formations that clearly confused Alabama. I think J.J. McCarthy did enough but there were stretches of this game where he still disappeared. I didn't think the quarterback play from either one of the quarterbacks was very impressive. Obviously, Alabama had issues with the center quarterback exchange. I'm sorry that this isn't really coherent going from beginning to end of the game. It's more of a stream of consciousness as I'm trying to digest everything that happened, but very much had the feel of that heavyweight matchup that we knew that both of these defenses were going to show up. They were going to play hard. We knew that both of these offenses were going to be a little bit limited with what they were going to be able to do. And thus, the lower-scoring contest in a slugfest, defensive slugfest between two Blue Bloods. Washington, Texas. Texas was the better roster. Texas, talent-wise, top to bottom, is the better team. Texas is the team that would be higher power rated. They were the team that was favored. And it didn't matter. That didn't matter at the end of the day because Washington was able to make Texas pay for their mistakes, and Texas made a lot of them. Texas was penalized, I think, nine or ten times in this competition for a significant amount of yards. Any time that it seemed like Texas was starting to get a little bit of momentum, there would be a false start. There would be a holding call. There would be an illegal formation. There would be something that would set them back. They also lost the turnover margin in this one. 
Texas's run game was there. It was there. That sticks out to me a lot about this competition because I think it foreshadows a little bit to the next one, right? If Washington was having issues in the run fits against Texas, you wonder how that is going to work out for them against Michigan. Now, I will say this, Washington has something very special. They have a sixth-year quarterback, which there is a disappointing lack of old guy jokes for the sixth-year quarterback at Washington. Uh, Stetson got all the smoke last year. Michael Penix doesn't get any of it, but either way, I digress. He is a surgeon with that arm. The release looks strange. He's left-handed, which throws a lot of people off. But man, is that ball accurate. It is 40 or 50-yard handoffs is basically what it is. I mean, he couldn't put it on you any better. And he's got a three-headed monster in the receiving room in Roma Dunze, Jalen Polk, and Jalen McMillan. Three guys that are going to play on Sunday. They have that on offense. They have a deceptively tough running back in Dylan Johnson. They have a solid offensive line. They have an offensive unit that can give you some issues. They do a lot with formations. They do a lot with pre-snap movement. It is hard to track these guys, and they play hard. They play hard. They have matched physicality with teams that were supposed to be more physical than them. Defensively, a little more feast or famine. You have seen Washington win games in a in a couple of different ways when certain things were not there, right? And so, but I think a guy like Braylon Trice, their defensive end, is a special player. That guy is an elite pass rusher at this level who is always around the ball, finds a way to get those takeaways. Secondary, a little more feast or famine. But again, it is a unit of guys that plays really hard. It is a unit of guys that has returned a lot of older players to this roster for the chance to do something special this year, albeit not nearly as talented a roster as the other three teams in the playoff. So a group of older guys, not as talented, scrappy, have won a lot of one-possession games. What does that sound like? That sounds like last year's TCU. Although I will say, I think this Washington team is more talented than the TCU team last year. That, they, that to me, they are playing that role, right? And so last year, we saw TCU defeat Michigan in a game where they stole some possessions. They made Michigan pay for some mistakes. They were scrappier than anticipated. And that's what we saw in this one, in the Sugar Bowl between Texas and Washington. It was almost a carbon copy of what I saw last year, what I took away from last year's games. So you wonder, moving ahead into the competition between Washington and Michigan, what version of the national championship game are we going to get? Do we get the Georgia TCU version where the blue blood, the more elite roster, top to bottom, just runs them out of the house? Or do we get more of a Ohio State versus Miami back in the early 2000s, uh, an Ohio State team that nobody gave them a shot 
to beat that Miami squad. And yet, who hoisted the trophy at the end of it? I don't know, but I am looking forward to seeing this contest because I have doubted and questioned and bet against both of these teams most of the year, if I'm being 100% honest. I have had question marks and doubts about both of these squads. And I'm either going to continue to be wrong or I'm going to get it right for once about somebody here. <laughs> but I'm going to have to believe in someone in this competition. I'm not ready to unpack this one on this episode. I think we're going to go ahead and do a single deep dive episode on the game ahead of the game and obviously a reaction to the national championship game as well in what will be season four of the Any Given You podcast. And I am so excited to make those episodes for you. But that wraps this one tonight. Thank you if you are still here with me at the end of this episode. I know it's a longer one. I hope you're having a wonderful new year. I hope you had a great holiday season. I appreciate the love and support for this show, and I hope you had a good time hanging with me on this one. And remember, any given time, any given place, any given team, you get it here at any given you.